let me read a couple of verses from Psalm 116. The first two verses. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. Our Father, we come to you because you've invited us to come into your presence and to offer thanksgiving and praise and petitions and supplications. And Father, we do give to you thanksgiving for all that you do. We're here and each of us has a measure of health. We live in a land that, although bloodied, uh, is still the land of greatest freedom in the world. And we are grateful for that, Lord. And we just offer you thanks for all that you do on behalf of your children. And Father, at the same time, we do want to offer petitions and supplications on behalf of the families of these three new tribes, missions, missionaries. Father, certainly it's, it's closure, but it's hard closure. We ask for the wives and the children, the, the parents, brothers and sisters who have been hoping and praying, uh, Father, that they will all sense that their prayers have been answered, maybe not in the way they would have desired, but uh, the three men are with you. But Lord, the children of these men uh, need your grace and touch that none of them will, will turn away because of this tragedy. But Father, they will be strengthened in faith and, and drawn to you. Lord, I pray for that mission, that it will grow stronger through this. And Father, the scripture teaches us the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. And uh, even though this is, is an inroad, we trust, Lord, that you will, you will turn it to good and you will turn it to victory. You will raise up many others to take their place and to stand in their stead. To you we commit this hour. We pray for your wisdom and direction as we study your word. We're thankful for all the good things you do for us. In Christ's name, amen. The last nine chapters of the book of 1 Samuel deal with the exploits of the heir apparent to the throne of Israel, a man, of course, by the name of David. In chapters 23 and 24 of, of that particular book, we studied and read of Saul's incessant pursuit of David in the wilderness. I mean, it was getting grinding on David as time passed. But you remember at En Gedi, God gave David release, God gave David victory, and Saul said, I have sinned, and he returned to Gibeah and gave up the pursuit. Then we have the 25th chapter, which is a, a beautiful little interlude in which David comes into contact with uh, a husband and a wife, the husband named Nabal, the wife named Abigail, who were folly and wisdom incarnate, literally. And we know that uh, how God glorified himself in ministering to David through Abigail and, and destroying this wicked man, Nabal, in all of his folly. But then as we move into the 26th chapter, we find in chapters 26 and 27 that in spite of his humiliation at En Gedi, David, uh, uh, Saul is now again in pursuit of David. His humiliation has kind of waned and he's no longer uh, intimidated by it and, and his, his unreasonable hatred and jealousy of David has again flared up. There's a kind of a waxing and a waning that occurs in the life of Saul and, and to some extent I suppose it's true of all of us. But in Saul's case of course it was very very dramatic. Last Sunday we began the study of the 26th chapter and we saw that David was again hiding in the wilderness of Ziph. 
again reminding you that most of these events are transpiring in this small little piece of territory here. You know, it's always hard for us when you're looking at a map like this, unless you look at the actual linear scale, yeah, uh, how big things are or how small things are. And, and to just remind you that uh, Israel as a nation today is only about two to two and a half times larger than Shasta County. Okay? It's a pretty small country. And so the region we're talking about here is, is a very, very small area, just a few hundred square miles that all of these events are transpiring in. So if you can imagine what difference it makes to be living in a day as they were where you had no technology of any kind to help in the pursuit of someone, you know, no spy in the sky, no infrared or any of that stuff, just kind of eyeballing it wherever you went. And, and that's all you had. And so that David could hide, literally, in such a small area from Saul for so many years was pretty amazing. But of course we have to remember behind it all was God and God was, was protecting him. So David is back in the wilderness of Ziph. Remember Ziph is a little town located right about in there. Uh, just a little village. And the Ziphites had tried to betray David once before. And we read that account several chapters earlier where they had gone to Gibeah and said, David is over here, come and get him. And, and of course, Saul nearly did trap David, but David managed to escape because God provided a way for him to escape. Now the Ziphites are at it again. Aha, we found David again. He's back on the hill of Hakilah again. So let's go up and tell, and tell Saul and, and see if Saul will not reward us wonderfully for all that we are doing for him. Saul had promised that he would no longer seek to harm David but of course, Saul's promises are full of holes. They are very little value. And so he has again uh, gathered his army, six, uh, 3,000 men, and he has marched south to try to trap David. David's spies, David had spies too, and he had spies all the way in Gibeah, for that matter, uh, reported the movements, and so he knew where Saul was, and he knew when Saul had entered the wilderness where he was, and that Saul was actually camping on the very mountain where David had been camping just before. We read in chapter 26 that David decided to check out the camp of Saul in the middle of the night. He came down uh, to check on the camp, and he asked if anyone would go with him, and his nephew Abishai agreed to go. And so the two men went down, and obviously, as I said last time, the fires either had to be burning very, very brightly, or it had to be getting close to sunrise for David to actually be able to see where Saul was in the camp, and for them to sneak into the camp, walk right up to Saul, where Abishai says, just give me the word, Saul, and I'll pin this guy to the ground forever. And David said, no, just take his spear and take his water bag, and let's leave the camp. And to remember that the scripture told us that David and Abishai were able to walk into the heart of a camp of 3,000 soldiers and walk back out again totally unnoticed because the scripture says God had put them all asleep. God had put them all asleep, including obviously the sentinels, which had to have been posted unless Abner was a total fool. And that's where we are. So let's, let's read a beginning on the 26th chapter of 1 Samuel at verse 13. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on the top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. And David called to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you who calls to the king? 
So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king your lord. All of this thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die, because you did not guard your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was at his head. Then Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord the king. He also said, Why then is my Lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please, let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord, for they have driven me out today that I should have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. And David answered and said, Behold, the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. And the Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all distress. Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. David and Abishai were able to slip away from the camp unseen, and they stood on a hilltop probably a few hundred yards away, just far enough that nobody could easily catch them, but far enough that their voice, or close enough that their voices could still carry across the open ground of the wilderness. I think it was probably about sunrise, light enough obviously so they could see when David held the spear and the water bag up that belonged to Saul. And the camp was awakening, and David called out to Abner, Abner, of course, was first cousin to Saul and was commander of Saul's army. Abner was a very, very brilliant uh, military leader. And we find that out even further on as we go through 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel. Abner, as David said there, who is like you in all Israel, Abner? Acknowledging that he was a great, a great man. Abner does not recognize David's voice and says, so who, who is this that's calling out to waken the king? But David ignores the question. He doesn't say who he is. And instead, he reproaches Abner for having failed to protect the Lord's anointed against potential assassination. <sighs> that must have rocked in Abner's ear. He loudly proclaimed that Abner and his men were worthy of death because of their miserable failure to protect the king from encroachment into the camp that very night. To validate his assertion, he held up the spear and he held up the water bag saying, just in case you think I'm joking, here is Saul's spear and here's Saul's water bag. How did I get it out here unless I had been in the camp? This proved, of course, that someone had been close enough to kill Saul and Saul would have been killed had Abishai had his way and had David not withheld his nephew from such action. 
Abishai, by the way, is also a brilliant military man. It seems that these two families, Saul's family and David's family, were extremely capable, were, were superior in the, in the area of military action. Well, listening to this shouting match, and it had to be shouting, Saul finally butts in and, and recognizing David's voice, he says, Is that you, my, is that you, David? David, of course, knew that he now had Saul's attention. And as soon as he did, he made a protestation, very similar to that that he had made to Saul when he stood at the mouth of the cave at En Gedi and held up a piece of Saul's uh, tunic and said, Is this not yours, Saul? Why are you pursuing me? I could have killed you, but I did not. And that is really the essence of what David is saying here. It had only been a year, maybe a year, since that previous encounter, and, and Saul had said to David, you will succeed me as king. And yet here he is pursuing David again. And, and David's asking, why? Why are you, you doing this? But he doesn't allow Saul to respond to the question before David answers the question himself. He says, there are two possible reasons that you're pursuing me. Either God has sent you in pursuit of me or men have done that. If God was responsible, David said, if because I have sinned in some way and God has sent you in pursuit of me, I will make an offering to appease, to, to honor, to turn away God's wrath. But he says, if it is men, if it is your advisors, which is, of course, what he was directly implying, who have urged you to do this, then may they be cursed. Why? Because the pursuit, David says, is preventing him from his spiritual inheritance, from being able to uh, to not only inherit the land that should be his, but, but to be a part of the whole spiritual inheritance. In those days, even though we're reading Scripture and even though David had an understanding of God that superseded most, in those days most people believed that the divinities, the deities, the gods were all tied to the land. You know, the Egyptians had their gods and the Greeks had their gods and the gods of the Greeks didn't affect anybody in Egypt and the gods of the Egyptians didn't affect anybody in, Greek, in Greece. They didn't have a concept of a universal God. And, you know, to what extent David did at this point, I think he's more uh, simply stating what most people believed in those days than what he himself personally believed. But he's accusing them of cutting him off from his inheritance in the Lord. And the commentator Ronald Youngblood says, in ancient times it was commonly believed that to be driven from one's homeland was tantamount to leaving one's God and being forced to serve other gods, the gods of the alien territory in which you have been driven. Generally speaking, in the ancient world, that's what happened. If you moved from one land to the other, you simply changed gods. You, you, you began to worship another divinity as you lived in the land of that, um, of that deity. David didn't want to die in an alien land. Now, actually, he was still in Judah, which was his homeland. But, but he was being pursued. So, in effect, it was as if it wasn't his land, and, and he was not legitimately there. He was a fugitive. He was an outlaw, supposedly. And so it was like he had been made. He'd been alienated in his, in his own country. And so, as he had done it at En Gedi, he, he challenged Saul about chasing around a single flea. And he said, it's like hunting one partridge in the mountains. Not a bunch of partridges, but one particular partridge. Something no one in his right mind would take the time to do or put out the effort to do is implied. Well, Saul heard these words from David and 
Saul, as he was at En Gedi, was smitten in his heart, in his conscience at least, conscience at least. And, and he began to realize that, that his pursuit of David was irrational. And he publicly confessed that his attitude and his actions were wrong. Remember, Saul did that before at En Gedi. This is hard on Saul, hard to make a public confession. Hard for any of us, actually, to make a public confession of being wrong. But what is interesting to note here, he makes no plea to God. Saul makes no plea, no prayer to God. He doesn't ask David to pray for him. He just simply says, yeah, I've been wrong. So he, he experiences a measure of conviction, but his heart is so hard that it does not bring him to repentance. Saul does not come to repentance. Conviction contrition, all these other things have no ultimate value if they don't bring one to repentance. This is one of the hard things about believing in the truth because we are required to come to a place of repentance to recognizing that we are on the wrong path and that we must submit to God and allow Him to change us and turn our path around and go the right direction. It's hard for humans to do because we're very prideful. Most religions, you don't have to do that. Become a Muhammad, you just have to make a simple little statement and, of course, then follow in their ways. But, but there's no heartfelt transformation that must be there. The heart must be born again. If the heart is not born again, there is no genuineness to the faith. In his love and faithfulness, God gave Saul yet another opportunity. God did not write him off, even though God knew that he would die in his sin one day. God did not write him off, but gave him another opportunity. Saul admits that he had uh, acted foolishly, and he says, I have committed a serious error. Serious error. In persecuting David, of course, I think in his mind, the most serious part had been that he hadn't caught him yet. This, of course, he had to admit, because there he was, caught as it were, uh, publicly, and, and there's David <clears throat> holding up the, the spear in the water jug, which proved that David could have killed Saul, but he did not. And yet Saul is pursuing David. And for what reason? What has David ever done except to serve the king and to serve him well? This, of course, made him look very foolish before his own men. Well, in the midst of his public confession, Saul did what he did before, and that is to invite David to return to the royal court. As, as, as obviously my life has been precious in your eyes, David, so I invite you to come back and I will not harm you. He promised that since David had honored his life, he would honor David's life. But as we shall see, David puts absolutely no stock in Saul's promise. Well, D David does respond to Saul's confession and he offers to return Saul's spear. It doesn't say water bag, but I'm sure that that was implied too. His spear, of course, was more than just a spear. And this wasn't just some old spear that was grabbed out of the rack. This was Saul's personal spear, which he used as his scepter. And probably the same spear that he had flung at David twice and flung at his own son Jonathan once. It probably had decorations and notches in it, you know. <laughs> You know, how many Philistines have I speared? Char, 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 you know, kind of deal. A and so it was, it was very important to Saul to get his spear back because, if anything, it was his symbol of office. 
David had spared Saul's life and he was not going to be accused of stealing Saul's spear, even though rightly he could have carried it off as the fruit of victory, you might say. But David wanted a totally clear conscience, and that's one of the things we find about David throughout his career. He always wants a clear conscience, and therefore he, he seeks to avoid doing those things that he knows God has said not to do, and at the same time when he does violate God's law, he, he, he confesses and he repents. It's true in the case of Uriah and Bathsheba, it took him a little while to do that, but when it was made clear to him by Nathan the prophet, he did repent and he did change. And of course, the whole 51st Psalm was written to, to express his desire for a clean heart. The question that goes through my mind as I think about this, what about the 3,000 men of Saul's army that were there that day? They were listening to this uh, dialogue being shouted across several hundred yards of desert. I mean, they had heard David's words, they had heard Abner's response, and they had heard the king's response and the king's public confession, and, and they had seen the spear in the water bag. What, what it was their response to all of this? What went through the minds of these individuals? Well, the scripture doesn't tell us, but I think, first of all, we can honestly believe that these guys were dumbfounded, they were flabbergasted that these two individuals had walked right into the middle of the camp and stolen the king's spear and water bag. And how in the world did they get away with that? Did any of them think that God had had anything to do with this? We don't know. Out of 3,000, we have to think some must have. I think some of them, as they were listening to all of this, and, and they were seeing David over there, and, and some of them were thinking, this guy snuck into our camp and stole a spear. Let's get him. I think a few of the macho ones were saying, just give us the word Saul, and we'll be on that guy, and I think I can outrun him, <laughs> and I can catch him. Well, Saul, of course, didn't give them permission or order any such uh, chase to happen. But what about some of the others? Could it not possibly be that some of the others were thinking, I think I'd rather serve David than <laughs> this bumbler over here uh, called Saul. I mean, it's, it's obvious that David was dashing. David was brilliant. David was honorable. Now, not all soldiers think in terms of honorable uh, and so forth, but dashing and brilliant usually uh, is attractive. Uh, I mean, think of how many people are attracted to Ben Laden. You know, why? Because he's brilliant, uh, he's bold, he's, uh, you know, he's successful. Even, even if it's a tragic thing, even if it's vile, they, they still are attracted to such uh, leadership. I think some of these men of the 3,000, they certainly probably had witnessed David slay Goliath. Some of these 3,000 may have even served in armies under David. As David went out the battle of the to battle the Philistines, when he was in royal favor, it had to be some of them because David has the cream of the military crop in his 3,000-man uh, unit here, which he is using. Whatever the case, I think almost all of them had to admit that their king had been humiliated by this Judean Robin Hood. Well, David does not accept Saul's promise. Instead, we find in this passage he appeals to Yahweh, proclaiming that the Lord will reward righteousness and faithfulness. And that's a profound concept to always keep in our mind. The Lord will reward faithfulness and righteousness. The Lord will reward it. Saul's promises had proven in the past to be meaningless. 
And David had no reason to accept that they would be truthful again. But he knew that the Lord's promises had never failed. David credited the Lord with putting Saul at his mercy and then protecting him because he was the Lord's anointed. It's a real awkward situation for Saul. Can't be killed because he's the Lord's anointed, but he's put in a place where he could have been killed. Couldn't be killed by David anyway. Saul's guarantees meant nothing to David. David was stressing the fact that I have honored the word of God, but you, Saul, have dishonored God's word. David's witness concerning the reality and the righteousness of the Lord before Saul and his whole army that day was both vivid and powerful. I mean, I could just see him standing with the spear and the water bag, just standing there like this, giving this message and proclaiming the truth of God. What a powerful image he would have struck on the horizon over there, probably possibly backlit by the sun, whatever way it was happened to be standing. The sun would have been rising, of course, in the east. Saul's guarantees of David's safety had proven to be untrustworthy. It reminds me of the promises of the Holy Roman Emperor back in the early 15th century when a man by the name of Zwingli was, uh, um, not Zwingli, um, John Huss. Huss who had proclaimed the word of the Lord in a new and powerful way and, and he was asked to come to the council at Constance to explain his position. And while he was, and he was given a guarantee by the Holy Roman Emperor, I, I promise you that you can have safe trip to Constance and a safe trip home. But when he got there, the council condemned him as a heretic and burned him at the stake so much for safe con conducts. Uh, the word of the emperor, of course, had no truth to it, just as the word of this king has no truth to it when it's being spoken relative to David. David appealed to the Lord to protect his life just as he had protected Saul's life and to deliver him from his distresses. And there's a powerful statement of truth here in this passage. From David's life and David's words, we can glean some very, very essential truth that will help us live day by day. We know these truths, but sometimes they need to be restated or rethought through by us. Human promises and earthly guarantees are basically meaningless. All kinds of promises have been made. Hitler said, just give me Czechoslovakia and that's all I want. And he made a fool out of the Prime Minister of England by the name of Chamberlain, who came back and said, we will have peace in our time. And Churchill was saying behind his back, you're a fool. We will not have peace. And they did, we did not have peace. But God's promises and God's guarantees never fail because they cannot fail because God himself, by his very nature, cannot fail. And those who walk in righteousness and obedience will experience the fulfillment of God's promises. Our lives are highly valued in the eyes of God. He cares for each one of us in this room equally and powerfully. And he will deliver us from our distresses. But it's clear from David's life that that does not mean that he will deliver us from trial and tribulation ever happening in our lives. Jesus proclaimed to his disciples in John 16, in a passage you know so well, 
In me, you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. It doesn't say you might have. You have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. It is that peace that delivers us from distress, not the absence of trials. You may have noticed. Our freedom from distress, our peace, is not produced because we sail through calm seas, but of God's reality in our lives in the midst of the storms. In John 14, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world give, gives do I give you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. The Greek word for peace here in that text implies God-given rest and contentment. That's the, the essence behind the Greek word that's used for peace by Jesus in that passage. Clearly, Jesus is saying that the source of true peace is God. It's divine. It's heavenly. It's not earthly. And so what he's implying here, or what is implied through this, is the same meaning as you find in the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom, of course, can mean absence of strife and of war. But basically, shalom has a deeper and fuller meaning, a meaning that has the essential core concepts of completeness, of wholeness, of harmony, of fulfillment, of well-being, of prosperity, of health. All of these things are all bound up in this Hebrew word shalom. They, they use the word, of course, in greeting. You cut past someone, you say shalom. It's a whole lot more than saying hello, howdy, <laughs> you know, how you doing? Those are fine things. But in shalom, you're, you're actually blessing the person. You're speaking a blessing to him, if you mean it, of course. It can be trite, too. Shalom, you know, no, no big deal, no nothing to it. But, but if we say to someone, if, if a Hebrew person said to another Hebrew person, shalom, and meant it in their hearts. They're blessing them with all these things, with this deep inner contentment and peace that is grounded in God. Just as a soldier cannot become effective without hard training and does not become a veteran until he's actually seen combat, so we as Christians go through training and combat, provided by the trials and tribulations that we do not look forward to, but which come inevitably into our lives because it is through them that our faith is strengthened and is our faithfulness strengthened. Our faith in God and our faithfulness to do His will are both strengthened by the trials and tribulations that come our way. And just as a soldier must have inner fortitude to succeed in training and combat, so we as Christians must have that inner peace of God in order to succeed in the trials and tribulations that inevitably come, that Jesus told us will come in this life. Because it is that way that we demonstrate both the reality of God and the validity of His Word. And both of those are absolutely essential in this word, world. For people to know that God is real and that His Word is truth. That's what transforms lives. 1 Samuel chapter 26 concludes with Saul's blessing upon David. He assures David that you will prevail, my son. Did he mean it? Did Saul in his heart wish that? Or did he speak it because he believed it? Or was he just trying to get out of the situation? 
Well, whatever the case, he spoke the truth because David would prevail. As he had done after he was humiliated by David at En Gedi, Saul quit the pursuit and returned to Gibeah. Does David then say, Ha, ah, finally, I'm relieved. The trials and tribulations are over. I can go home. <laughs> no, no, because we read the first verse of chapter 27 and we think, David, <laughs> David, but we have to put ourselves in David's place. How much, how many times have you or I faced a relentlessness of pursuit, an incessant hammering to the point that we become discouraged and depressed and, and wonder where in the world is God? That's happened, I think, to most of us at some time. And so it happens to David. And we read this in the 27th chapter and we see what, what David ends up doing. He does what's unthinkable given what we know about him and, and his past, and yet does God reprimand him? Does God berate him? No, God uses him even in the midst of this. And this is, I think, very encouraging to us because most of us have noticed probably that life is not as it was for Pollyanna, but life is very difficult. And trials seem to come one right after the other, and sometimes they pile on top of each other, it seems. But as David said, God will reward righteousness and faithfulness. Well, we'll look at chapter 27 next week. It's a very, very powerful chapter. 